the patriarchy conversation isn't just about whether women should be in leadership or whether women should be paid equally. It honestly goes way deeper than that. Patriarchy has created this entire cultural system that dehumanizes and subjugates and at its most extreme destroys female bodies, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Welcome back to Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus. We are your hosts, Melanie. And Gary Allen. Thanks for joining us again today. And before we get started talking about the totally non-controversial topic of patriarchy, we just wanted to mention that we create content for free and we are a nonprofit. So if you are enjoying what we're doing and want us to keep making more episodes as well as other content, we do have articles up on our website, and we hope to make courses in the future. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find more information and learn how to become a supporter on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash holyheretics. All right. It's now time for the fun. Uh, If you're just tuning in for the first time, we have been talking about the unholy trinity that we believe has replaced God at the center of American Christianity. And this unholy trinity is what we've been referring to as the three Ps, so purity, patriarchy, and power. And our last two episodes were all about purity and what's now called purity culture. We highly recommend listening to those if you haven't yet. But now we're going to move on to patriarchy and our deep ties to it. Uh, It's something we see within our American culture at large with things like the gender pay gap and the imbalance of men in leadership positions and the lack of women in higher paying positions. But we also see it in the church and um, in an even more prevalent way with some sects of Christianity being solely based on patriarchy. Basically, it's patriarchy on steroids. So before we dive into all of that, let's start at the beginning. So for anyone who missed the introductory episode, Gary Allen, what is patriarchy exactly? It's a system by which men rule and women submit in very simplistic terms, and it's based on perceived theological and biological distinctions that really relies on the unequal distribution of power between men and women. Of course, it privileges men at the expense of women, and it orders gender relations in the home and at work and especially at church, as you just mentioned, assuming, of course, that men are in charge. So in the home, the father is the head of the household, and he is the head of all spiritual matters. In the workplace, patriarchy implies that men hold the leadership positions and are the decision makers, whereas women are presumed to be better at being assistants or uh, holding positions that are more nurturing, like teaching. And in the church, patriarchy assumes that only men can be pastors or spiritual leaders because women are the inferior sex and were created to be underneath men's authority. So all of these spheres, whether it's home, church, or society, run in a top-down fashion where the strong rule, men rule, and women submit. And it runs pretty deep in our cultural and our spiritual inheritance. How deep? How far back does this go? 
Gosh, I mean, a long way. Um, patriarchy, it comes from the Greek word meaning the rule of the father. And so it's an ancient concept, but it even predates Greco-Roman society. Anthropologists believe that around 12,000 years ago, patriarchy really became normative in many parts of the world when human beings moved from nomadic uh, lifestyles to homesteading lifestyles to more from a hunting and gathering to farming and village making. And so what happened is suddenly you have human beings living in community. They have shared property. They have resources that need to be protected. And therefore, the strong then got elevated to, you know, leading and being in charge of culture. But it's not universal. And it also doesn't, you know, go all the way back to the beginning of, of human beings. I even noticed in some of my doctoral studies where Native American tribes, especially in North America, were actually matriarchal uh, up until the you know 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And so patriarchy isn't a universal concept. It's certainly a human invention. But in terms of our cultural inheritance as, as Westerners, and especially as Christians, it's almost endemic in who we are and how we've been formed. The Greek poet Simonides wrote, the worst pestilence Zeus ever made was woman, and Confucius <laughs> is attributed as saying, and, and get ready to vomit, Melanie, he said, 100 women are not worth a single testicle. Yeah. Yeah. And then Hebrew scholar Ben Sirach, which really in some ways kind of started this descent into patriarchy, he wrote between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, said, do not sit down with the women, for moth comes out of clothes and a woman's spite out of a woman. Women give rise to shame and reproach. So Sirach kind of sounds like an ancient version of the Billy Graham rule, you know, distance yourself, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, be, don't be alone with women. Um, and unfortunately, this uh, mindset really carries on into the early church where early church fathers like St. Augustine had a really messed up understanding of women and in some ways sexual perversion writ large. But he wrote, I fail to see what use a woman can be to men if one excludes the function of bearing children. Oh, okay. So women are the ones who have problems with shame and spite. I, I can see that from what we've just read. Uh, <laughs> something that I discovered by asking people on social media for their thoughts on this topic was that many don't even fully understand how patriarchy manifests itself because we're just so used to it. Someone sent me an article that actually argued that the gender pay gap doesn't exist. And the evidence they gave was that we can't compare men's salaries to women's salaries because women just take the lower paying jobs. So that's not a problem of the system. It's, it's just that women take the lower paying jobs. And it was like, oh, OK, yeah, let's let's look at that a little bit. Why is it that these jobs that tend to be taken by women pay lower like a job like a teacher? Why is it that they tend to pay so much less than the jobs that men tend to take, like a financial advisor or a, a surgeon? Let's go deeper than just like, well, women take lower paying jobs or maybe like let's talk about the fact that why do women take those jobs? It, could it be because 
women think that they're better suited to that job because we've said for so long that women are the nurturers and and they're better with children than men are or or why is it that men take these higher paying jobs like being a lawyer or a doctor maybe is it because they're not told from day 1 that they have the responsibility of raising the kids so they feel like they have the freedom to to do a job that's super high stress and takes a ton of their time i mean it's interesting how People were just like, no, this doesn't exist uh, and, and weren't willing or maybe able to go deeper and peel back the layers to what's really causing the problem. I think it shows just how culturally conditioned we all are to not even see it. I mean, we can't even see how patriarchy even exists, much less that it's a problem. And so when you were talking about, you know, picking a job A or a job B based on dominance or nurturing our culture values dominance. We value male qualities and devalue female attributes. And so we would rather pay for a dominating position and pay less for a nurturing position. One person who responded to the conversation we were having on social media uh, mentioned that when when she and her husband uh, met new people, they often ask her husband what he did for a living, and they never asked her what she did. Uh, probably because they just assumed that she was, you know, just a housewife and. It just shows how ingrained patriarchy really is in all of life. Uh, another example is one that seems to be advantageous for women, which is a part of our society, but it's actually fairly patriarchal. It's when women are given maternity leave when a child is born or even when a child is adopted. But paternity leave is still very much on the fringe, especially here in the States. And that sounds like a good idea on the surface, but it's actually steeped in the assumption that women are resigned to the home, they're supposed to be the ones raising their children, and that men don't need or even want to be there when the child is young. So, you know, why have paternity leave? Because obviously caring for children isn't something that a, you know, a man is supposed to do. And we haven't even dipped our toes in the waters of patriarchy within religion, which we'll get back to in a second, because that takes it to a whole other level. Um, Something else that became apparent from posting on social media is that Many people are actually really hesitant to talk about this or many think that it shouldn't be talked about because it's not actually a problem and that it's just a few people blowing it all out of proportion. And I have my own thoughts about that. But why do you think that is, Gary Allen? Well, one, I think we benefit from it, uh, especially as men. We benefit from the culture. We are we participate in it. Uh, Even women participate in their own subjugation. So I think there's a myriad of reasons why patriarchy has become so normative in culture. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. And in some ways, we can't even imagine another way of life that would deconstruct this. You know, what do we replace it with? So it's just embedded in who we are, sadly. Yeah, I think it's embedded in our psyches. We just somehow believe that men are more suited to leadership than women. We don't even question that. We we just believe it because men are stronger and less emotional and can handle stress better. But we don't even question, is that true of all men? Like, can we make that generalization of all men? No, we cannot. Um, and we don't even question if those are the qualities that actually make good leaders. We just have been told that for so long that we believe that those are the qualities that are needed for someone to be good at being a leader. but. I don't know if that's true. And, and and to go back to it, I think we could question 
whether it's true that men are actually less emotional, I think our 45th president provides ample evidence to the contrary, but we just believe it because we've been told it and it's just like embedded within how we see the world. One thing that came up in conversations on social media was the fact that some areas like extreme sports have now swung totally in the opposite direction. And now women have an unfair advantage in terms of pay. And that's because there's less competition on the women's side. So they do less work, but they get paid the same amount. Like in surfing, whoever wins the men's side has to compete against way more men. And they get paid a certain amount for winning, whereas the woman competes against way fewer women but gets paid the exact same amount as the men. And so then it was like, well, is there really an unfair advantage for men? And I I think that's an interesting thing that was brought up because it's like it's been so imbalanced toward men for so long that like swinging it in women's favor is just so intolerable. Like we can't even talk about that or like. We should bring that up because this is this is not okay. This is not equality. This is an imbalance. And it's like, well, yeah. And also, let's talk about why there are fewer women in things like extreme sports. Could it be because we're told that, like, well, you probably shouldn't want to do that because someday you're going to have to have a family. And someday, you know, like, why is it that there are so many more men encouraged to go into extreme sports? I mean, there's a lot there. But the patriarchy conversation isn't just about whether women should be in leadership or whether women should be paid equally. It honestly goes way deeper than that. Patriarchy has created this entire cultural system that dehumanizes and subjugates and at its most extreme destroys female bodies, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Exactly. And by the way, you know, the only one of the only industries in the world where women are paid more than men is the porn industry, which, you know, yeah. And that should tell you just about everything you need to know about how society values women and their bodies. Hmm. You know, this is the one place where you're going to get paid if we can see you. So, you know, when when we when we talk about patriarchy, there's also this incredible link with with purity. And we talked a little bit about that in our purity uh, episode. And I think both of them unfairly target women. And as you said, Mm -hmm. dehumanize and subjugate women and and make them inferior. One of the people that, that have written a lot about this and that I've learned a great deal from is Sister Joan Chittister. In her book, Women's Strength, she says, the world and the church are both guided only by the masculine half, by masculine means, for masculine meanings alone. And as a result, the world walks on one leg and sees with one eye and thinks with only one half the human brain, and it shows. And along the same line, Sarah Bessie, uh, writing just a couple of years ago in her book, Jesus Feminist, said, Many of the seminal social issues of our time, poverty, lack of education, human trafficking, war, and torture, Domestic abuse can track their way to our theology or our beliefs about women, which has its roots in what we believe about the nature and purposes and character of God. So, as you just said, Melanie, if you believe that God created women as second-class citizens, there is no limit to the harm and the damage that you can perpetrate against them. So, patriarchy is so much bigger than just 
Can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman serve communion? This is a cultural uh, condition that that really dehumanizes women. And when you step back and you start looking at larger cultural issues on the global scale, you start to see them. Um, we have an over-reliance on the idealization of the masculine at the expense of the feminine, and it has global consequences. For instance, authoritarian male-dominated regimes are back in vogue. We've seen that really clear. The nuclear arms race is back and more dangerous than ever. Globally, we lack a cohesive plan to care for creation, which is a very nurturing aspect. We'd rather subdue mm. the planet than to steward it. Uh, worse, females in particular continue to be victimized and trivialized and made invisible by public policy arrangements built on their own inferiority. 15 million adolescent girls worldwide have experienced forced sexual trauma at some point in their life, and 72% of all human trafficking victims are female, and four out of five are sold for sexual exploitation. Two-thirds of the world's illiterate adult population are women, and nearly one in five women in the United States have been raped at some point in their time. So this is a system that isn't broken. It was built on female uh, subjugation, and it is showing mm. the world over. And I think what patriarchy has done is it's tilted the world in favor of men. And as Christians, it is our obligation as human beings to really begin to rebalance the scales, to bring back female dignity and female equality as a core principle of what it, of what it means to follow Christ. So the question for us, which is rooted in patriarchy, is simply, are women fully human or are they not? And you would think the answer is so simple. Well, of course they are. We never said they weren't. But it's not when you actually start looking at how not only society but church functions. I think society is making strides but still has a long way to go in terms of truly valuing women and treating them equally. But in the church, especially the white evangelical church, women are given lip service as equal, but they are not equal in practice at all. Um, one woman from South Carolina told us, I went to a church that blatantly said women could serve in the nursery or the kitchen. They could not teach a boy over the age of 12 because a woman had nothing to teach a man. Women could only read scripture in service if their husband stood next to them to give them authority to read. That sounds... Staggering. Staggering. Yeah, that sounds so outdated and even cult-like, but I'm guessing that many of us grew up in churches that taught that this was how God designed things to be. And so if we were raised that way, it almost isn't shocking. Because it's like, well, yeah, men are above women. Women are to submit to the headship of men. Another woman shared an even more disturbing story about the Christian home that she grew up in, but it was extremely misogynistic. She said, I grew up in a complementarian and misogynistic family. My Christian father assured me that him molesting me was not actually against God's law because he didn't, quote, go all the way. He hit me and kicked me and told me how worthless I was because I was female. Mm. Unfortunately, her story is not unique, and it's one of millions of stories of abuse 
in homes and in churches. And it all stems from this authoritarian leadership and patriarchy and what's called complementarian theology. I struggle because it's so frustrating that church continues to be one of the most dangerous places to just be a woman and one of the safest places to be a predator. Mm. And this isn't just a few people in Christianity. There are tons of people who espouse this and and, and there are different extremes of it, but there are most denominations in the U.S. have some level of patriarchy built into their theology. Uh, the, the more extreme ones totally promote this as like timeless biblical truth. So if you've ever heard of the Christian patriarchy movement or the quiverful movement, which is if you've if you ever watched 19 Kids and Counting or you are familiar with the Duggars, that's what they're part of. And it says that a woman should not use birth control. She should just accept as many children as the Lord blesses her with because that's how God designed things to be. He's the one who should be in charge of opening or closing a woman's womb. And we can see how that can easily just turn into like, well, you can't say no to your husband and you can never like if if he turns you into a baby making machine, that's it. You're you have to do that because that's the Lord's will. Uh, there's another term, maybe you've heard of it. It's known as militant fecundity. And it's just basically a, the belief that Christianity will win, will triumph over all other religions, not by evangelizing and converting people, but by having as many kids as possible and just like in sheer numbers will beat all other religions. So that that promotes then women having as many children as they possibly can and then raising them in the same mindset. Um, and, and there are even parts of the Christian homeschool movement that are really tied into patriarchy as well. Gary Allen, you just pointed out that all of these ideas, patriarchy, male-dominated leadership, and female submission, are the root cause of this systemic abuse that we see but I, I do want to be fair. Not all de denominations are as extreme in their patriarchy as others. And not all men within Christianity use patriarchy as an excuse to abuse or use women. There are plenty of wonderful men within these traditions. But they do still claim that men are above women and they are women's authority and they are the only ones who can lead or be pastors. And that's what I don't get. Um, if if we see how much damage these ideas have caused in our society and in our churches and in our homes, why do so many Christians continue to believe that this is God's will? Why do they accept this as normative? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about offline, which is that most evangelicals believe the Bible actually supports patriarchy and male leadership. And to soften its ugliness, they've come up with their own term, complementarianism. And they think that that is the only faithful interpretation of the Bible. And so entire denominations are devoted to it. Uh, espoused faith leaders like Denny Burke and Russell Moore and John Piper, John MacArthur, the Gospel Coalition, you know, all of them believe in very ardent understandings of male leadership. It's even written into the bylaws of the Southern Baptist Convention. We read, and this is from a quote uh, from their Articles of Faith. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men 
as qualified by Scripture. So what they're saying is, women, you can't be pastors because God doesn't want you to be a pastor. And this kind of separate but equal theology sounds pretty familiar with the Jim Crow laws of the uh, antebellum South that's, mm. that really similarly subjugated uh, African Americans under under whites. And it just makes women second-class citizens. It provides a glass ceiling for them, and it creates a seedbed for abuse. What you notice, of course, is that these complementarians blame this inequality on the Bible and on God. You know, they're not going to take responsibility for it themselves, but they're going to say, look, see, it's right there in black ink and plain English in your Bible. So, I mean, who are we to question God? And Reform, pa- reform pastor and writer John Piper even went so far as to say wives should endure abuse for a season as a part of their obedience to their husbands. Whoa. So he's, he's referencing the Bible to say, you know what, if your husband beats you and is sexually assaulting you, well, I'm sorry, you might actually need to take that because the Bible tells you to. And that is one of the hmm. most gross misrepresentations of Scripture I think I have ever heard. And you can see how sexual and physical abuse is directly tied to the apparent biblical mandate for men to be in charge. It's, it's really disturbing when you start to, to unpack it and look at it. It's, it's sad. I, I just have this picture in my head of a Christian guy saying, oh, I love women. I think women should be in charge of everything. But God doesn't want it that way. So so what can I do? I guess I just have to be in charge. And there's like a little shrugging emoji that follows it. I mean, it. this was something that always bothered me, even as a teenager. I remember having struggles in a Bible study and like the Bible study leader wanting to meet with me separately to discuss it because I was so frustrated. And I mean, if I... And permitted to use this verbiage, it, it gave me a check in my spirit. Mm. And and I remember asking, like, why? Why would God design and order things like this? Why would he say, sorry, women, you can't have the same relationship with me that men can, or you can't understand the Bible the way that men can, or you can't even read the Bible unless you have a man as a head over you? Um. I don't think I even ever got a good answer except for like, we don't know. That's just what the Bible says. God doesn't always make his ways clear to us. Something that Rachel Held Evans wrote in her book, Inspired, has actually helped me a lot with this as an adult. She said, if you are looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? I love that because it actually gives us a new lens to actually view the text. Because when we do read the Bible, we have to be honest and say that there are some pretty patriarchal verses and stories that are just replete throughout the text. And they're not just limited to to, to the Old Testament. The entire Bible uh, was written in a patriarchal world. But patriarchy from that perspective that Rachel was talking about isn't a prescriptive, here's how we are supposed to live. It is rather a descriptive backdrop to the text, 
which I think is a really important distinction if you are reading the text with eyes to see and with ears to hear. So when you do read and see things like a woman's places in the home or even limited to the outer court of the temple or that female bodies were merely property and playthings, that they were consistently given in marriage without their consent, what you do with the appropriate set of lenses is you go, oh, okay, they are only telling us what they know. This is a description of the culture they lived in. It is not a prescribed divine mandate from God. And as I said, the scary thing, or maybe the more problematic thing, is when we actually read the New Testament writings who do uh, really imply some pretty hard uh, female submission verses in them. You know, what do we do with those texts? And I don't know. I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar on any level, so just know that they're not easy, and it's not necessarily 100% straightforward, but we owe it to ourselves to to really look at these texts from more than just a plain English, well, it says it on the page, I guess I have to to do that. You know, I think a lot of us were simply taught to read the Bible that way, but it's not that simple. It's 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 far more complex, and we have to remember I think first and foremost, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but it certainly wasn't written to us. It's also not an encyclopedia that simply spits out facts and beliefs. It's it's a story instead. And probably most importantly for this conversation about patriarchy, we need to realize that the Bible is multivocal, meaning it has multiple authors. And whether we see it or not, it often disagrees with itself. The various writers and redactors and, and editors all bring their own perspective and their own agenda to the text, even though we can still say it's inspired. So even very essential things like how do you get saved or the role of works versus faith or free will and predestination, those things don't even align perfectly in harmony with the text. So simply admitting that the Bible is often unclear about really essential things is, I think, a healthy place to start. And sociologist Christian Smith wrote a book about just how to read the Bible well, and it's called The Bible Made Impossible, and he references this whole notion. He says, given the pluralism of arguments, we might ask, in what sense does or can the Bible actually function in an instructive, issue-clarifying authority for the open-minded Bible believer who simply wants to know what the scriptures teach about gender roles, marriage relations, and the place of women in church ministry. In actual practice, it does not and apparently cannot serve as such an authority. Hmm. And I love that because there it gives us a little bit of a, a freedom when, when we approach some of these problematic texts. But above all, when we look at scripture verses that apparently support patriarchy, we, we need to remember Jesus trumps the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship and follow Christ. And so whenever we come across something in the text that our gut or the Holy Spirit goes, uh, this feels wrong, we have to weigh it with the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in this case, Jesus always wins. You know, Jesus didn't support patriarchy, and so therefore we cannot either. Can you give one or two brief examples of that? Because I think one of the problems is that we hone in on the passages that explicitly mention submission or gender roles or headship. And then we miss 
the the passages that speak to it without explicitly mentioning it. So like we miss how Jesus lived in a way that was totally contrary to the patriarchal world and system he lived in because we're only looking at the specific passages that mention it. And I like I think if we stop looking at the specific words of the Bible and just look at the events that those words are describing or the actions they're describing, I think that gives us a truer picture of what Jesus actually stood for. Yeah, you're right. And you have to look in the margins a lot of times, you know, because as you said, it's not explicit, it's not direct, but there are tons of examples. So maybe I'll just give a couple that have stood out to me. First, shocker of all shockers, Jesus actually had women disciples. You know, full stop, just hmm. just on that conversation would probably be an entire podcast. The text only explicitly mentions Jesus calling 12 men, but a closer analysis reveals that women were also followers and disciples of his, which would have been utterly scandalous in first century Palestine. And we see this in Matthew 12, when Jesus's family comes to him and wants to have a word with him basically for kind of taking his faith just a little bit too seriously, uh, someone from the crowd comes to him and says, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to have a word with you. And Jesus is recorded as saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, we read that and we just totally miss it. But uh, scholar Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, talks about the cultural context of this verse. And he said, in a Middle Eastern context, a speaker cannot gesture to a crowd of only men and say, here are my brother and sister and mother. He has to say, if there are only men present, here are my brother and my uncle and my cousin. Jesus specifically mentions and gestures toward his disciples, and he says in both male and female terms, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters, which really verifies in a way that women were a part of the crowd and that women were his disciples. Mm. And the second example is a well-known story. It's found in Luke 10. It's the story of Mary and Martha, where Luke tells us, and Martha had a sister called Mary, who, quote, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, again, we read it, we run past it, we don't even know why that verse is in there, but sitting at a rabbi's feet in the first century was a euphemism for being someone's disciple. Paul himself in Acts tells us that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, and so Mary became a disciple of Jesus, and Martha doesn't like it. You know, it's pretty telling that she responds pretty negatively to her sister sitting at the feet of, of Jesus. In the account, uh, Martha directs Jesus actually to send Mary back to her rightful place in the kitchen, but Jesus refuses. <laughs> and, and looking at this from a Middle Eastern context shows that Martha is distracted, not because she needs someone to help her peel the potatoes. She's distracted and disturbed because her sister has had the audacity to take her place among the men as, as a disciple of this rabbi Jesus. 
So if anyone wants more uh, perspectives or even more examples of this, I would really encourage you to read Kenneth Bailey's book. Again, the title is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's fantastic. He has an entire section on how Jesus elevated the role of women. And even in this particular story in Luke, Jesus is defending Mary, I think, while debunking the entire cultural divide that didn't allow women to be disciples. And he's deconstructing Mm -hmm. patriarchy and elevating women to full and equal status with men as one of his disciples. And I think as Christians, it really behooves us to ask the question, when it comes to patriarchy, are we going to do what the Bible apparently says, or are we going to follow Jesus? And that is the core crux of discipleship. Jesus said, follow me, be like me, do as I do, Mm -hmm. live as I lived. And so to me, patriarchy becomes a matter of discipleship. Am I going to just continue to do what Uh, religion and Christianity and culture says, or am I going to be radical and follow Christ, which means I have to reject this, and I have to believe that women are fully human and fully capable of any role uh, and any function that that men have. And I I would even go so far as to say that it's women that saved the Jesus movement. Without them, we may not even have Christianity, unlike the male disciples who all flee, uh, women were brave, hmm. brave enough to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, and it was women who were faithful enough to attend to his burial and therefore be the first witnesses of the resurrection. In a lecture from a few years ago at Yale University, Pastor Robin Myers kind of succinctly said this. He said, in the Gospels, you may have noticed that men move away from the cross, women move toward it. And it was Mary who in some ways, gave the first post-Easter sermon when she ran to the 11 men, again, huddled in fear, and she preached to them, come and see. And of course, there are countless stories of of Jesus speaking to and elevating women. And to quote Sister Joan Chittister once again, she says, it was women who anointed him and women who proclaimed him and women who prepared him for burial. It is women, in fact, whom Jesus put at the very center of the only two mysteries of faith, the incarnation and the resurrection. It is a woman, after all, who turned God into flesh. And I I love that because Mm. right there, you know, if God doesn't trust women, um, why did he give his son to be born by a woman, nurtured by a woman, raised by a woman, and formed by a woman? Mm. You know, come on now. I love all, hearing all of this because it's taking a bigger picture of Scripture and saying that all of Scripture matters when talking about something like leadership and roles, not just two or three verses here and there, but it's like, let's look at the entire text and let's look at the cultural context. And I think as soon as you start hearing these little things about how truly radical Jesus was in his time, like you can't stop noticing it. In the purity episodes, you mentioned the story of the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus didn't have her killed, even though patriarchy said she should be killed. There's also the story of the woman at the well and how everybody avoided her because of her reputation. And Jesus didn't avoid her. And in fact, like went out of his way to tell her about forgiveness and to have it 
an interaction with her. And and then there's the story of the, quote, sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet with oil while he was having dinner at a Pharisee's house. And in that story, the Pharisee was totally judging him for letting her touch him and, and for her wasting all that oil. Um, but Jesus actually defended her and, and commended her actions, and he forgave her and then told the Pharisee that he did the wrong thing. And and as we've been talking about this, I had this thought, and I've never thought about this before, but what would it have been like if during all this, because it was men who wrote all these books that we now call the Bible, what if at the same time there had been women who were recording it from their perspective? Mm. Like, how, how different? what would that wow. have been? been like if we had all the same stories but from a woman's perspective or even different stories because the women were like "Eh, i don't care about this battle and how many men were killed i care about you know how we cultivated the earth and made a beautiful town out of nothing you know like i just i really am curious how different that would have been or what what it would have been like to have seen it from a woman's eyes instead of just through these men's eyes that wrote it all down for us. But I guess I could just keep coming back to this idea. Why weren't we taught any of this? Why were we only taught this patriarchal view from the pulpit and in our Bible studies? In a way, I feel like it's almost like a magician because the magician gets you to focus on what they want you to focus on so intensely that you don't notice the things they don't want you to notice so that you can believe that it was magic that they just did. That's what I feel like is happening here. It it brings to mind, um, I went to this Christian leadership school years ago, and in one of our classes, we were supposedly being taught both the complementarian view of scripture and the egalitarian view, which says that men and women are equal and there's men don't need to be the head of women. Um, So we were supposedly being taught both views without any bias so that we could make up our own minds and um, decide which one we thought was most biblical. And I remember as we were reading through the book, the chapter in the book that went through this, I remember thinking at the time, like, it's so weird how there are like four or five times more verses presented as evidence for the complementarian view than for egalitarianism. And there was a lot more even written by the authors in defense of complementarianism than egalitarianism. But my young mind just concluded that it was because there must be so much more in scripture in support of complementarianism. And people who believed in egalitarianism were just like basically trying to make something out of nothing. But what's fascinating is none of these stories about Jesus that you just mentioned were in there. And none of the cultural context was mentioned. None of the fact that it was written by men or or even like that there's it's hard to translate from these original languages to English. And English oftentimes comes up lacking. None of that was in there. It was just specifically about specific verses and like even honing in on one or two words within those verses, but it did not take in into account any of these stories that don't specifically mention gender roles. Um, so 
I don't know. I guess I just get frustrated thinking about it because it seems like there is this richness in there. And instead, we're just taught this one thing so that we, as men and women, believe this is how God ordained it. And this is just what we're supposed to do. Obviously, there's so much more here, especially about how to read the Bible and all that. And we're going to have tons of links in the show notes so that you can read deeper. We'll link to the books that Gary Allen has mentioned. Um, so don't don't forget to look at those if you want more on this. And of course, we will do future episodes talking more specifically about biblical interpretation and translation, all that. But I guess the next question for me is like, now what? Where do we go from mm-hmm. here? How how do we reframe this conversation for all of society and also for for the church? How do we how do we move forward? Uh, you tell me. Um, you know the answer. <laughs> I mean, the answer, just like the problem of patriarchy, is incredibly complex. So maybe just no matter where we start, we need to begin with realizing how important it is that we deconstruct this worldview, which is what it is. It's a worldview that is totally dominant in society. I mean, over the last four or five years, patriarchy and misogyny have really not only reared their heads, but become almost uh, worshipped in American culture. Mm. And we've had someone at the highest level of the land that has been overtly, overtly patriarchal. And that has an impact on everyone. Um, It just Mm. does. And so we're now living in a culture that's seething in resentment and in backlash because we're calling that into question. And now we have men, mostly white men, if we're honest about it, who believe that they're losing control of culture. And so they're lashing out in anger at these scales that seem to be balancing far more toward a more gender equal world. So I think deconstructing it now, uh, we have to. If we miss this moment historically and culturally, we're going to look back and go, you know what, we had a chance. We it, it was displayed before our very eyes for four years how wrong and evil this worldview is. Why didn't we do something about it? So maybe as parents, I mean, I've got two girls, um, and who cares if you have girls or not, right? This is still a problem. I think it probably mm. starts with modeling. It's it's showing women and young girls that there is no glass ceiling on their lives, that no matter who they are, they can achieve anything. And, and I think that's the beauty maybe of Kamala Harris uh, being inaugurated as, as the first female vice president. Regardless, yeah. yeah, I mean, regardless of your political affiliation, this is something that needs to be celebrated because she achieves uh, female leadership in a world dominated by men. And our daughters need to see women in power, one, to believe women should have power, and then maybe more importantly, to watch how those women use that power in radically different ways, you know. Imagine a world where most prime ministers and and presidents are, were women. I guarantee you we would have a comprehensive global uh, stewardship plan when it came to environmentalism. No question. Mm. I also guarantee you we would have less war. So elevating women to positions of power, I think, balances the world. 
it, it kind of comes back to that whole notion that Chittister was talking about is it's now time more than ever to do that. And I think that's really why in a small way, my wife and I joined the Episcopal Church years ago because we wanted our daughters to see that a woman could actually be a priest. You know, wow, daddy, mm-hmm. can I do that? Absolutely you can. Well, I, I didn't believe it until I saw it. And so maybe that's just where we start. Um, maybe we just start reframing the conversation in the church and in our homes, and we stop giving theological justification for male leadership. We stop giving evangelical men a pass when it comes to patriarchy. We we stop the jokes. We stop the mansplaining. We stop the silencing and the social prejudice that exists on steroids uh, in the church, and we have to confront it. And I think we also have to gently confront even the women who tacitly support this and and tacitly support their own subjugation. And and so when we see it, we we say something. Um, and in, speaking of seeing it, you, you may have actually seen this a few months ago. Megachurch pastor John MacArthur was at a large reform conference in Charlotte. And to warm up the crowd, the MC actually asked MacArthur if he would play a word association game with him. And so... Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, I mean, this is terrible. And so the MC said, all right, I'm going to give you a word. And the first thing that pops to your mind, just say it out loud. And he's like, okay, well, you might get me in trouble, but here we go. The word was, actually two words, Beth Moore. And his response was, go home. To which the, yeah, to which the crowd just cheered hysterically. And it was really one of the most indicting and one of the most embarrassing moments in church history, because here you have the entire world. It's now on YouTube, probably been shown you know, a million times, a man dehumanizing a woman once again. By the way, a woman who has done some incredible work for the gospel. So hmm. the arrogance and the pride and the patriarchy was not only on full display, but it was so accepted. It was so normal. It was so, oh, ha, ha, ha. No, we've got to stop that. It's it's harassment, and we have to name it and move away from it as quickly as possible, I think. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned women being complicit as well, because one woman on social media actually brought that up. She said, I actually think that in many ways, women do as good a job of keeping other women repressed as men do. The competitive culture that so often exists between women is often the culprit. So few women are ever allowed at the table. In many ways, we are pitted against each other to fight for a place. She is absolutely right. This is absolutely part of the problem. Not only is it still true that women can only come to the table if they're allowed to by those who control the table, which would be the men. Um, But then we're told that there's a limited number of seats, and so we have to compete for them, and only a few of us can be allowed because we wouldn't want women to take over, of course. And I, I think that that mindset is instilled in us starting at very young ages. I remember in probably starting in middle school, that I started really not liking other girls and feeling more comfortable having guys as friends because I saw other girls as only trying to steal the boys away from me or I saw their beauty as being in direct competition with my beauty. Like, if they were beauty beautiful, 
then that must mean I'm not as beautiful. Um, or I saw their wit or their intellect or any other good quality as being a threat to my own because it was a competition. It was, you know, there can only be one most beautiful woman rather than like everyone's beautiful and we have room for everybody's beauty. Mm. Um, and, and that competition mentality amongst women is super strong still today. I mean, I think that that's why The Bachelor show on ABC is still going strong it's because we like to watch that competition between the girls and when they get all catty and and just try to put each other down. But I, I mean, I, I honestly wonder what would happen if we weren't trained at young ages to see women as competition or, or to try to compete for our spot at the table? What if what if we were taught to just come to the table and just not even listen to the men who are saying we can't come? And what if we brought women with us mm. and said, we're all coming, we're all coming together? Um, I, I mean, I know that that's easier said than done, but it's really interesting to imagine that and to imagine how different a woman's experience would be if if we if we were trained from a very young age to see the world, not from that like masculine competitive perspective, but the like cooperative we're all in this together perspective. Yeah, I love that word you just used, imagine. Um, it, it reminds me of Walter Brueggemann's book, the, the Prophetic Imagination, where he basically says one of the biggest tasks of the church is to imagine a better world and then to go about building it. And I think that's the call, right, is we have to first imagine a world where patriarchy doesn't exist and then go and be about building that world. So, wow, I mean, what a, what a task for us heretics um, who really will <laughs> refuse to taint and distort the legacy of Jesus by pursuing something else. So I think we owe it to ourselves. I think we owe it to the world. And I think we definitely owe it to the church to reject these three Ps that we've been talking about in uh, in this series and begin to point to something else, something far more beautiful, and I dare say far more ancient. Feminism isn't a modern manifestation. It's, it's incredibly ancient. We go all the way back to Genesis 1, where God created Adam and Eve as equals, period. The, the conversation should end there. God said— hmm. Man and woman are equal. He created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So at the very beginning of the biblical text, we get this beautiful glimpse of the totality of God balanced eternally with both divine masculine and divine feminine attributes that were manifested in, in both male and female form. And in his book, uh, The God We Never Knew, theologian Marcus Borg candidly wonders, he kind of candidly wonders out loud, how can women be made in the image of God if God cannot be imagined in female form? I mean, Ooh. yeah, think about that for a second. Um, all of our images of God are male, are masculine. All of our pronouns for God are masculine. What might it look like to start redefining and reintroducing the divine feminine in our language and in our spirituality? That alone might change how we see the world. 
And then in the text, to go back to it, even Adam declares Eve to be bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. And, and in referencing this verse, Matthew Henry, in one of his biblical commentaries, writes, The woman was made out of a rib from the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. So instead of highlighting our differences, Scripture seems to point at the beginning to what both male and females have in common. We are identical in origin, we are united in purpose, and we are mutual in relationship. One of our goals here at the Sophia Society, and specifically with the Holy Heretics podcast, is to help all of us rebuild faith from the ground up and to to move away from some of the more harmful expressions of faith, to rebuild it in the sense to where our faith looks just like its founder. And I think that means to deconstruct patriarchy and replace it with something far more Christ-like. And and just a second ago, I dropped the F word, uh, feminism. And, you know, I think a lot of us were were formed to believe that that word was terrible, that, you know, a fembot, <laughs> feminazi, um, you know, I think of Austin Powers movies or some kind of satanic cult. But holy cow, that's not what the word means. And, and we actually need a beautiful femininity and a Christian feminism to, to embrace and balance the world that we live in. I mean, think about it. Instead of seeing human beings in a hierarchical or top-down fashion, I think what a Christian feminism would do would obviously still see human beings and males and females as different, but dignified. You know, different but dignified parts of a greater whole. No one is disposable. No one is higher. No one is lower. We're all equal before God. And so, part of that prophetic imagination of envisioning a different world might be to embrace feminism and to reject exclusion and hierarchy and domination and replace them with equality, with mutuality, with interdependence, and and even with mutual submission toward one another. So I think it's time, like you said, Mel, to invite the other half of the human race to the table and admit that women are fully human And because they are fully human and fully made in the very image of God, there is nothing a woman can't do. And to me, I know it's simple, but that's the end of the story. I Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think that part of that might be not seeing the table as being limited. Mm. You know, it, it, it comes from this perspective of power and control are limited and therefore we must not only take it, but then protect it and guard it at all costs so that no one else can have it. And and I just don't, I don't see how that's sustainable. What if we just said, like, the table is unlimited and we can all be at the table and it's not about power and control. It's, like you said, mutual submission and stewarding this earth together and learning from one another I just see how it could be so much more beautiful if we stopped coming at it from this competitive uh, scarcity mm. mindset and and had the abundance mindset. And that the table is round. You know, there there's no mm. there's no <laughs> one at the head. We're all equal. Um, mm. You know, I think it changes the way we see the world. I really do. 
I, I agree. Um, and it's it's encouraging for me as a woman to know that there are entire traditions of people out there who don't read scripture in this literal prescriptive way and who see the bigger picture and the bigger truths. And it's encouraging for me to see that there are men like you who who aren't going to just like let patriarchy continue, even though it benefits you. Right. You're like, no, this is not right. We're going to set this right. And it, and it gives me hope for Christianity as well, um, because I see so many people leaving it because of these toxic expressions that we see. But we we do not have Christianity does not have to be and has not been for a long time worshiping the three Ps. Mm. Christianity can and should be about worshiping God and following God and and living a life like Jesus. And so it gives me a lot of hope. And hopefully, hopefully it gives you guys as listeners hope as well, um, because clearly we still have a long way to go. But there are people who want to make strides and who are making strides and who are imagining a different world. So that's it for this episode. <laughs> um, again, I feel like we have covered a lot and there's still a lot that we could talk about regarding this topic. So we are really hopeful that we will get to interview some wonderful people about this, too. Um, and, and just know that this is not the end of the conversation. We would love to hear from you if you have uh, any perspectives or ideas or concerns or whatever. Please feel free to email us. You can email us at podcast at sophiasociety.org. That's S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. Or you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook as at Holy Heretics. Shoot us a message on there. Or we're on Instagram as at Holy Heretics Podcast. And feel free to message us on there as well. We do check all of that. Um, you can head to holyheretics.org for full show notes. These ones are going to be long. Trust me. There's a lot in there. Um, and our next episode will focus on the final of the three Ps, which is power. And that one will probably be very interesting and just as non-controversial as these other topics have been. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, hopefully that, yeah, sure. Uh, hopefully that will follow shortly. But as I said at the beginning, we are a nonprofit and we do rely on the generosity of listeners like you to be able to keep the lights on and to keep cranking out content. So if you like what we're doing and you want other people to hear it, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash holy heretics um and that is it for for this episode we can't wait for the next episode to come out and hopefully that will be soon this episode was written by gary allen taylor and melanie mudge and produced by the sophia society music is by faith and foxholes and sound levels were mixed by joshua mudge